Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning, and uh, the, the sentiment of what Steve shared in terms of our friendship over the last 13 years has also spanned the amount of time I've been aware of you as a congregation, have prayed for you, have been thankful for you, have, have thought of you often, and it's been a joy to be able to be here on occasion, uh, especially today. And, and thanks for the uh, wonderful worship team that led today. Some of my favorite songs uh, today were sung, so... Uh, uh, it's it's uh, made it extra special being here with you today. Well, it's a, it's a joy to be here as a representative of the 140 or so congregations uh, in Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and uh, to, uh, to join you as we seek to make much of God today through his holy word. Now, today we're going to be, again, as you uh, probably guessed from the scriptures that were read, read today, we're going to be exploring the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Corinth from 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. Now, as we prepare to jump into this text, I want to have you think for a moment about a quote from Archbishop William Temple. What he said is this. He said, the church is the only society in the world which exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. The church is the only society in the world which exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Now, I know this statement may raise a red flag, perhaps a yellow flag for a few of you. After all, uh, the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is indeed to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is definitely true. But we also must remember from John 4.23 that God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This means God is, by his very nature, a missionary God who seeks more worshipers, more people who will join in this triune circle, bringing glory to God the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's this idea behind John Piper's famous quote, which reads, missions exists because worship doesn't. And so, this missionary posture of the church, this outward orientation of our fellowship is actually motivated by our deep desire to spread the fame and glory of God to our neighbors and to the nations. Now, in line with this fundamental understanding, what we're going to learn today from 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, is that the more we understand who it is that we are as Christians, the more it is that we will embrace and live out this outward missionary identity and purpose. Now, I want to give a little more context before we jump into the text here. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he planted the church in Corinth around 50 A.D., so this would be around 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and you can learn about this more in Acts 18. 2 Corinthians was a letter that was written by Paul to the church in Corinth after he had left that church, so four to five years later. And what we learn from the letter is that since Paul had left, some men had become influential in the church, and they began to speak critically of Paul and his ministry. And so in today's passage, really what we're hearing is a defense, a part of a larger defense against these false teachers. 
In these few verses in particular, Paul is defending his motives for ministry. He wanted to make clear that his ministry in Corinth was not motivated by bad things. He wanted the church to know that his motive was the mission of the gospel, to make disciples, to introduce other people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And so he wants you, friends, here in this auditorium, in this sanctuary, to know that this same thing should also motivate you. This, that our ministry and service should be motivated by the things that we're learning today. So very, very important here. The Apostle Paul is saying this is why we do what we do. Now, before we work our way through the text, I want to make one other clarification. Uh, knowing that some of you may be young in your faith, or you may be new to the whole Christian idea. Maybe you're visiting today, and you're like, hey, this whole Christian thing is new. And you've heard sprinkled throughout uh, the service thus far, this idea of the gospel, which comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. It's the good news of the gospel. And for Christians, this is the good news of Jesus. And I just want to summarize very briefly what this good news is all about. You see, God has done in Jesus a work to restore his children, those who, are, who know him, to right relationship with him. You see, and the way he did this is that he sent his son, Jesus, God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life here on earth. And the reason was, was to bring glory to himself by fixing our brokenness. You know that feeling that you get when you turn on the news and you hear about all the brokenness in the world, that sick, sick feeling, or, or when you think about your own tendency to stray in faithfulness, to, to sin, right? This, this brokenness, this fundamental experience of this disquietness that we feel in our heart, it's all rooted in this idea that we have sinned, that we are unfaithful, that we turn away and we turn towards as was mentioned in the children's devotional today, that we turn against one another in our anger. And so in order to fix this problem, Christ went to the cross, taking upon himself the punishment we deserved for sin. As, as he rose from the dead, what did he do? He conquered the power of sin and death so that all who look to him in faith, they would find forgiveness from their sin and reconciliation with God. And so this brings me back now to the message, the focus of today's message. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at how this reconciliation that I just summarized with God, that it changes us as Christians. So if you're not a Christian this morning, you're going to get a unique opportunity to, to look under the hood, so to speak, to, to get a picture of what it is this faith is all about, how it, it transforms us. And then if you are a Christian today, know that this message is pointed right at you, okay? You are the intended audience today. And what we're going to see is three things from 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. Through the gospel, we are, number one, given a new perspective. Number two, we are given a new role. And number three, we are given a new identity. So let's look at, at one. Through the gospel, we are given a new Perspective. Look with me now at verses 15 and 16 in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm sorry, starting at 16 actually, 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now this verse, it opens up with this, this uh, phrase from now on, therefore. It links us back to all of the previous content. Now we don't have time to unpack that today, but it really resonates deeply with this idea of the reconciling work of the gospel. And so in light of that, what are we to do? What are we to do in light of the reconciling work of God through the gospel? Well, in verse 16, we learn, so from, uh, so from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Though we once regarded Christ that way, we do so no longer. What Paul is saying here is he's implying this idea that before we knew Christ, before our lives were transformed by the gospel, how we measured people, and in particular how it is that we measured God, was not accurate. Now, I want you to think about the answer to this question. How does the world measure success? In the eyes of the world, what makes a person successful? Well, you see, the world tells us our success comes from the things we own. It tells us our success comes from how smart or or beautiful we are, or how much power or influence or wealth we possess. What Paul wants us to see is that when we meet Jesus, the standard of success changes. That once our eyes are opened by the grace and truth of the gospel, we're given a new way of seeing everything and everyone, including God himself. Now, no person illustrates this better than the Apostle Paul himself. You see, as we heard a few moments ago, uh, uh, it, early in Paul's life, he was not a Christian. He was this zealous Jew. He was, was kind of like a rock star Jew, right? He was, he was celebrity Jew. He was famous in the eyes of the Jewish people. Every Jewish mother wanted their daughter to marry someone like the Apostle Paul. He was so zealous for his faith. He persecuted Christians, even uh, participated in their murder in order to silence this evil message that was being propagated. And we learn about that whole story in Acts 8. But in Acts 9, Paul, the time known as Saul, he had this radical moment of conversion that we just read about along the road to Damascus. This bright light blinded him. And in that moment, he heard the words of Jesus saying, Saul, why is it that you are persecuting me? And as we heard, Ananias placed his hands on the blind Saul, and in the name of Jesus, he healed him. At that moment, it was as though scales causing blindness fell from his eyes. And we know, based on the text, this was not just a physical healing. This was also representative of the spiritual healing in his life, as the Holy Spirit infused him, and he now saw everything differently. What we learn in these passages is that at that moment, quite literally, Saul's perspective changed, right? From a zeal for empty religion to a wholehearted faith, transforming faith in Jesus Christ as Son of God. And so his whole world was turned upside down. A switch was flipped. 
And his measure of truth was radically transformed. And it's this experience that I think Paul is directly referencing in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul is saying this, this same experience that he knew so personally that when we receive Christ and we receive the gospel and that gift of grace and through faith, uh, this, this old person is now gone, right? We, we now have this new way of seeing the world, at looking at everything. The old measure is gone, right? From even how we look at things like hardships to friendship to the unbeliever, of course, to God himself, it's now entirely different. Now, in the last few years, I had the joy of graduating from single-focus lenses to progressive lenses. Now, I don't know that any of you are old enough to maybe relate with me in this regard, but our eyes get older and our prescription changes. And, and what I love about the progressive lens, as hard as it was to get used to it first, what I love about it is that it brings clear vision to every depth of field. Now, when I look at a book, or if I read my Bible, as long as I'm looking through the right part of the lens, it's clear, right? Or if I look at my computer, a different part, or when I'm driving, another part of the lens. What I want us to see is that the gospel of Jesus is very similar. That same experience where everything, every depth of field is now in clarity due to these wonderful glasses that I now wear. You see, when the gospel of Jesus transforms us, it causes us to see everything, everything in a different way. We now see God as our merciful Savior. We see the depravity of our sin and the need for his grace. We see other people made in the image of God but broken by sin and in need of reconcile, rec the reconciling work of the gospel. Right? We see our motivations. We see how we suffer. We see everything in life. Our whole purpose is radically transformed because we're now wearing the progressive lenses of the good news of the gospel. Our life has been transformed. And it's this kind of shift in perspective that Paul is calling us back to. And so it leads me to the first question for you this morning. In what ways... Does this beautiful gospel message of Jesus Christ challenge you to look at the world through new eyes, right? To your whole world, to see Jesus, to see others, to see even yourself through the eyes of the gospel. You see, when you think of your Savior Jesus, does it stir your heart in love and worship? When you think of your brother and sister in faith, do you see them now as your new brothers and sisters in Christ, adopted into God's family? When you think of your coworkers and friends and neighbors who are, who are not following Jesus, do you love them as people made in the image of God, but do you also weep for them as Jesus wept over Jerusalem? in Luke 19, as he longed for them to know the peace and life that is found in him alone. Now we're gonna to continue to think about this 
in the next two sections. So, in verse 16 and 17, we've seen that the gospel gives us a new way of seeing, a new perspective. And number two, that through the gospel, we're given a new role. Let's look at this now, starting at verse 18. We'll go 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, this word reconciliation, as I mentioned earlier, it implies something that we were once alienated. We were once uh, broken in our relationship with one another due to sin, right? As we, again, saw in the children's message this morning, sin, it causes conflict and brokenness in our relationships. And so in verse 18, Christ reconciled us to himself. And in that moment, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with track and field, maybe you enjoy watching the Olympics, you know that the in the relay race, whether it's 4x100, 4x400, or, or any other form of that kind of a relay, that in, in the, the central to those races is the presence of the baton, right? This metal rod that you hold and carry, and the first runner runs that, their lap and then hands it off to the next runner, etc. And what I want us to see is that this is what happened when Christ brought reconciliation to himself to our life through the gospel. What he was doing was he was uh, handing to us a baton, right? And he said, now it's your turn to take this same message of reconciliation and bring it forward. We're now carriers of that ministry of reconciliation. It's our responsibility to pass it on to others. And this is part of our new role, as we see in verses 18 and 19. Now it's clarified even more in verse 20. Read along with me there. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So according to Paul, as bearers of that message of reconciliation, we are now carrying that baton And it's more than just a responsibility that we've now assumed. We've assumed a role. We are now ambassadors for Christ. Now, during World War I, in the Western Front of that war, it was largely fought through something called trench warfare, trench warfare. Now, uh, the way this worked is that in the large fields of battle, large trenches were dug on both sides of the battlefield. And these trenches were where soldiers would protect themselves from small arms fire. Now, it was a very brutal form of war, right? Because, and why? Because many casualties happened, right? Because the only way to advance the front was to come out of the trench, leaving yourself vulnerable to injury and death. Now, because radio technology wasn't secure in those days, the only way that a commanding officer could communicate to the front was using a runner, a runner. Now, runners were the ones who took this communication forward. Now, to be a runner during trench warfare 
was to assume something, a very important role, but was also to assume an extremely dangerous role. Now, one of the interesting realities for runners was that no one ever questioned their instructions, so I am told. Why? Because they were carrying a message from the commanding officer, right? They, they spoke with the authority of another. Not only that, but they took their life in, you know, they put their life in the path of great danger just to bring that message. Now, what I want us to see is this. This idea of the role of runner, it does have certain parallels with what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. Like a runner, we go and we tell with the authority of the one who sends us. In Matthew 28, 18 and 19, Jesus says, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So we go with the authority of the one who sends us, right? That, the one who handed us the baton, right? Like a runner, we're carrying an important message. Verse 20 says, what's our message? Be reconciled to God, right? To the world around us as we, as we weep with hope that they too would know this unbelievable message of the glory of God and the reconciliation that he offers us. Be reconciled to God. That is our message. And like a runner, we are definitely vulnerable to injury, aren't we? We're living in an increasingly hostile setting for what it means to bring our convictional kindness, this message of reconciliation to others. We see in chapter four of 2 Corinthians, Paul, he's gonna unpack all of this. He's gonna talk about afflictions and persecutions that he endured because of his calling as ambassador for Christ. And so, to review, we've been changed by the gospel and we've been given a new way of seeing things. And this good news of our reconciliation with God, it's, it's changed us forever. And in light of this, we now have a responsibility. We are now ambassadors of this good news. We are ambassadors of this good news. So the question for you is, I want you to seriously think about this for a moment. How is your role as ambassador for Christ changing the way you live? How does it change what you do when you get up in the morning and head into school or work or, or uh, get up and take care of your responsibilities, whatever they may be? John Stott is known for saying this, that every Christian is a missionary cleverly disguised as a mechanic or a teacher or a project manager. Now, do you see yourself that way? If you're a follower of Christ, do you see that your primary role, the very top of your job description, is ambassador for Christ? Even more than a teacher, even more than a student, even more than a project manager or a homemaker, you are ambassador for Christ. And how is that role changing the way you live? We need to answer that question. How is it changing the way we live? Now, as you consider this as a church, you need to ask a similar question. Now, I love the, the, the value that was read this morning that is important to who you are, but what does it mean for you to take that seriously? Right? How, how are you as a congregation intentionally engaging 
in the needs of the city in order to demonstrate your faith, building bridges of trust as you proclaim faithfully the gospel that has changed you. Now, years ago, Rick Richardson, he, he's at the Billy Graham Institute of Wheaton College, and they ran an extensive study looking at churches that were growing every year by at least 10% conversion. Okay, whether it's the children's ministry all the way to people outside the church. They were just seeing the blessing of God through the Spirit as they, as they were growing more and more in seeing the lost be found. And what they found, one of the common characteristics of those congregations is that evangelism was, was one of the top three priorities of that church. And it was unmistakable. We, we know how, and we're actively engaged in sharing our faith with those who are far from Christ. And, and there were other characteristics as well, but this was one of the main ones. And, and so the question for you as a church, how do we prioritize this idea of Great Commission living, of ambassador for Christ role fulfilling uh, happening within our midst? Is it one of your core values, not only in writing, but also in living and in believing? If not, why not? And so we've seen that the gospel of Jesus Christ, what? It gives us a new perspective, gives us a new way of seeing, and it gives us this new role as ambassadors for Christ. And the third thing we're going to see is that we're given this new identity. Just love this. Let's look at 21 together. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther uh, called the great exchange, right? And what is exchanged? Our sin, as we, as we come to faith, as we respond to the call of God in our life, our sin is placed upon Christ. And, and his righteousness then is given to us. So let's, let's first think about just a moment this idea of our sin being put on Christ, really God making, as the text says, Jesus our sin. The idea here is that what Jesus did on the cross was much more comprehensive than simply paying off our spiritual debt. Uh, one commentator explained this idea of Jesus becoming our sin this way. He said, Christ experienced the consequences of human sin. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, estranged from God and the object of wrath. He was treated as a sinner in his death. He, he became sin. He was treated as a sinner. So what this means for you, if you are a Christian this morning, is that Jesus died your death. That theft that you committed. That when God poured out his righteous anger on Christ, he was treating him like a thief. That lie we told on the cross, God poured out his indignation on the Son of God, treating him as the liar. Our impure and lustful thoughts. On that day, God was delivering due punishment for our sin, and that punishment was directed toward his Son as if he was the one who had committed those 
sins, in our laziness, our fits of anger, and yes, even our failure to be faithful as ambassadors for Christ. When Christ became sin, it was as though God was treating his son as the, the perpetrator, as the one who had done those things. Now, this, is, this is what it means for Christ to become sin. He was literally a wrath-bearing substitute for you and me. Now, as humbling as that is, and as beautiful as that is, it's only half the story. It's only half of the exchange. The other half is seen in the words of verse 21, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to become the righteousness of God? What it means is that if you're a Christian in your conversion, Christ not only took your sin, but he gave you his treasure. In the words of one commentator, this means this. In the same way as the innocent was punished as if guilty, the guilty was rewarded as if innocent. This means that when God looks upon you, if you are in Christ, he is just as pleased with you as he is pleased with his own son, not because of anything you did, no, but because of what Christ did for you. The Heidelberg Catechism describes it this way. In the moment of this great exchange, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Now, aren't you amazed at what it is that God has done for you in Christ? Doesn't this wonderful truth inspire you to worship? Now, before we wrap up, I want to remind you of something. This letter is not written to unbelievers. It's written to the church. All this talk of the gospel, it's being emphasized to a saved and redeemed people. This suggests that if we have drifted from living on mission as ambassadors for Christ, no matter how long we've called ourselves Christians, we've drifted because we've lost sight of the gospel in all its beauty. You see, when mission lags, Paul doesn't just create a new evangelism program. He doesn't just make us feel guilty. Oh, why don't you do this? If you really loved you, do this. No, he points us back to this fundamental and yet awe-inspiring message of the gospel which gives us a new perspective and a new identity. It doesn't mean that training programs are bad, right? They're good. They can be good. But it does mean that fundamentally, if mission has drifted, we have to start with our hearts. Because the more we embrace our identity and the new perspective it forms, 
the more faithful we become. In mission as messengers of reconciliation. You see, our worship fuels our witness. And this points back to this statement at the beginning of the message. The more thankful and grateful we are for the gift of God in Christ and how that gift has changed us, changed us the more likely we will be to, to just have it spill over in every aspect of who we are. As we grieve for those far from God and as we bring this good news to them. Now, I don't know how many of you have, have seen, there's an old movie called Castaway, it's old now, but um, it's based on a classic novel by Daniel Defoe, the novel called Robinson Crusoe. And, and the, the, the spin on that story that was told is that uh, there was an actor who played a Federal Express employee, and his plane was flying over the ocean when it experienced trouble and the plane went down, and it stranded him on this desert island for five years. And there was a, a, a funny commercial that was released um, during a Super Bowl many, many years ago that, that was about Federal Express. So Federal Express was promoting themselves through this funny commercial. And in the commercial, uh, this man who was playing this actor, right, this reenactment, he, he was all disheveled. You could tell he'd been on an island for five years. He was long, grown hair, and he was messy and dirty, and his clothes were tattered and torn. And yet he was carrying this Federal Express box, right, that was all beat up from years of preservation on this desert island. So with this weathered package in his hand, he goes up to the door of this suburban home. And the owner comes to the door and he explains this. He says, I survived five years on a desert island. And during that whole time, I kept this package to deliver it to you. In response, she gave a simple thank you, took the package and went to shut the door. And of course, he was not satisfied with that answer. No, so he asked, he said, if I may ask, what was in that package after all? And so she opened it and showed him the contents, saying, oh, nothing really, just a satellite telephone, a global positioning device, a compass, a water purifier, and some seeds. <laughs> now, in this humorous commercial, we get this profound picture of what it means to be a Christian in this life. See, many of us, we live as functional castaways. We are unaware that all we have for life, all we have for joy, all we have for satisfaction, and all we have for mission, it's right beside us. It is in us. And, and so for, for those of you this morning, and we all need this reminder, for those of you living as functional castaways, what Jesus wants you to see is that you have been saved by grace. And that salvation, it's, it's not just a get out of jail free card. It is not. It's an invitation to a new way of living, to living into this inestimable gift of God's righteousness at the cost of his son's life. It is an invitation 
to an identity which transforms you from castaway to insider, from an enemy to a friend, from impaired to empowered, from reclusive to a runner, from shamed to unashamed, from aimless to ambassador for Christ. And so in light of this truth and the words of Paul, I challenge you now to live as Christ's ambassador, knowing that God is making his appeal to the world through you. To live your life and speak your words in such a way as to proclaim to the world around you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is a comfort to us. And that the gospel gives us the ability to not preach or live a do more, try harder message. We simply need to fall back into the rest that you give us through your son and through the work of transformation that has been done in and for and through us. And so I pray as we rest in the gospel that it may become the spring from which the message of reconciliation leaves our lips to these neighbors and friends and acquaintances and colleagues who are yet to know the hope that we have in you. Strengthen us to that end. Remind us today as you inflame our hearts with a passion for worshiping and knowing and celebrating and living into this amazing work of the gospel to give us new life in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.